Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. We are a multi-generational community of grace on mission, and you are always invited to join us online or in person. Learn more about us at sevenriversvillages.org. Hey, glad you're here with us today. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And uh, let me tell you a little bit about what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'm going to be going on vacation, which means that uh, I will not be here with you on Sundays. Uh, Next week, Matt Matulia is going to be here, and he's going to be bringing God's word to us. He is planting a church over in the Mount Dora area, so very excited about that church plant. And uh, any, any advice you want to give him about church plants, I'm sure he would love to hear that. And then uh, two weeks, uh, June 11th, uh, Dave Dorst, right here, raise your hand, Dave. Uh, he's going to be bringing uh, God's word to us on that Sunday. So very excited. Thank you for being willing to do that. And uh, so I will be uh, on vacation. And uh, after I get back, you might think, well, he's going to be picking up with our, our Mark study. And uh, I'm not going to pick up with our Mark study. We're going to do summer in the Psalms. So we're going to talk about communing with God through the Psalms over the summer. And then in the fall, uh, we're going to pick up again with uh, Mark. Now, this is a good stopping point in some place because the whole of Mark has been building to this point thus far, the confession of, the, of who Jesus really is. And we're going to look at that in just a second. But as we're, as we're coming into this, uh, I want to kind of talk for just a, a little frame this up for what we're doing. Is this passage is largely about identity. And what it means to have an identity. Now, uh, first and foremost, it's about the identity of Jesus. And the reason we're talking about this is because identity is a very big deal in the United States right now. And the way we talk, we have identity politics, we have gender identity, we have a lot of issues and things that we're talking about culturally. And the Bible actually talks about identity uh, for us. And so here it's the identity of Jesus. And one of the reasons I think this is so helpful in talking about the identity issues in our culture is because... We don't know who we are. We don't know our identity until we know the identity of Jesus. To understand yourself and how you fit in the world, you have to really understand the identity of Jesus, who he is. So let me invite you to stand as we read Mark chapter 8 and talk about the identity of Jesus Christ. So we begin our reading in Mark 8. 8:27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them, saying that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. And Matthew and some of the other Gospels talk about this, of saying that uh, Peter said, this will never happen to you. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is God's holy word, and he's given it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. So let's pray and ask him to bless us as we study it this morning. Let's pray. For some, this is uh, an overly familiar passage they've read numerous times. For others, it's completely new. And for both of us, we need your Holy Spirit to guide us and to enable us to see things that we would not see otherwise. And so we pray that you, Holy Spirit, would enter each of our hearts and have a conversation with us this morning about the identity of Jesus and what that means for our identity, not just in life, but our eternal identity and who we are before you. Would you bless us? And Lord, even as I'm preaching, I, my identity is pretty skewed. Uh, I find all of these different things at war within me about who, who am I. So I pray that the deep identity, who I really am in you, that that would uh, now guide me, direct me, and let me speak from my heart. Would you bless us and would you be with us as we look at your word together, we ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Have a seat. Uh, we, uh, we live in the United States in the 21st century, and that means that we are children of the Enlightenment. Uh, we've been infected by, affected by Enlightenment thinking. And uh, one of the things that happened during the Enlightenment in a big way was that Jesus was relegated to the realm of, of m at least religion, but for a lot of people, he was relegated to the realm of myth altogether. We're not even sure that he was really a person. But uh, Bart Ehrman uh, says that Jesus was never a myth. Never really just a myth. Bart Ehrman is a noted atheist scholar, and he, he wrote this. He said, I don't think there's any serious historian who doubts the existence of Jesus. We have more evidence for Jesus than we have for almost anybody from his time period. So this is Bart Ehrman who's writing. He's saying Jesus was a real historical figure, not, not simply a myth. And why did he say that? He said that because there's too much historical information about Jesus. Now, I know modern people will say that we, the only information we really have about Jesus came from the Bible, but that's not entirely, entirely true. The Bible is the only authoritative, divinely inspired information that we have about Jesus, but there were other people writing at that time period within the, the, the century that we have record of today saying that Jesus was a real historical figure. And the things they tell us about Jesus are completely in line with what we read in the Bible. So if you're just looking at uh, sources from the time period talking about Jesus, what we see is this. Jesus was a preacher and teacher in the area of Judea. We know that. The Bible says that. Jesus performed miracles, that he was crucified on the cross, that his followers claimed to have seen him raised from the dead, that they worshipped him and sang hymns to him as, as God, and that they lived lives of sacrificial love because of their faith. Now, these are all things that we know from outside information 
And here's one that's really big and, and important for this passage this morning. In about 110 AD, a guy named Tacitus was writing. He was not a Christian, but he was writing about the Christian movement. And he said that Jesus was called the Christ. Christus is the way he talked about it. And so that was what they were saying in the early second century because that was the claim of the Christians from the very first that Jesus is the Christ. Now, what does that mean, that Jesus is the Christ? Uh, well, as you begin to look back through the Bible, you begin to see that there's this one figure that shows up very early on called the seed. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is the first time that the seed shows up. This is after the fall, and the seed is the person, the figure that uh, God promised to come and to crush the head of the serpent and to heal the world. The seed shows up again in the life of Abraham, where the promise is made that the, the, the land, the inheritance, would be given to Abraham and to his seed, singular, meaning the seed would inherit the earth. And then the seed shows up again in the book of Second uh, uh, Samuel with King David, where David is promised that the seed that his seed would sit on the throne forever. The seed keeps being pulled all the way through. But then there are these other names that are often mentioned about this figure, the shadowy figure that seems to be there in the Old Testament that's talked about. Sometimes he's referred to as the, the, the sacrificial servant, the sacrificing servant. Sometimes he's referred to as the victorious king and warrior. In Daniel, he's called the son of man, who was like the ancient of days, who, who, who seemed to be a god himself, and described in godlike terms. And Jesus actually uses that term here to talk about the son of man suffering in verse 31. So all of these figures are really pointing to this, uh, all of these are pointing to this one person, the seed, the suffering servant, the Christ, the Messiah who is coming. And so this is the first time in the history of the world that that figure is standing on the earth and somebody gazes upon him, sees his life and says, you are that Christ. You are that person we've been waiting for. You're this person who's come to heal the world. You are that Christ. You are that seed. So the world history from Adam and Eve on was about this figure. And Peter says, you are the Christ. Now, I've got the sense as I read through this that it's like when Jesus says, who do you say I am? I, I kind of imagine the angel saying, okay, say it, human. Say it. Say it. We're waiting. We've been waiting for this. Somebody to say it. You are the Christ. And when Peter does this, he draws a line in the sand. And he says, from now on, people will be divided into these two camps. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is not the Christ. These two, right? Just these two camps. And it's really important as we begin to look at this because that forms and frames our identity. So to understand who we are, we have to understand who the Christ is. So that's what we're talking about is the Christ, the cause, the cost. You have to, because you go to seminary, you've got to have words start with a C all the, all the time. So that's the Christ, the cause, the, co the cost. Um, and what he's calling us here is not just to believe that Jesus died, but Jesus is the Christ who died for us. Okay, that's where we're heading. Say the Christ. Uh, when asked what people would say about Jesus, uh, Peter, people in Peter's day are, were just like us. They gave answers to the question about who Jesus is based on their cultural assumptions, trying to make sense of it. 
So some said, you know, people today may say he's a myth, he was a teacher, he was a prophet, he was a visionary, he was a wise leader, he was a religious founder, and this all makes sense to people today based on what we already believe. Uh, But when Jesus and his followers in the first century who'd lived with him for years watched him, day in, day out, saw him, and Jesus puts them to the question, "Who who do you say that I am? They say, you're the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, what does that mean? Um, Well, we're quick when we read the name Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus to read it simply as Jesus who died for our sins. Now, Jesus' name, his name, Joshua, Joshua, what does his name mean? Joshua, Jesus. Yeshua. Yeshua. So Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, they all mean the same thing. The Lord saves. uh, Yahweh saves. But then when you come to uh, the, the Christ, Christ is not a last name designating which Jesus we're talking about. It's, it's like, it's not, he's not Jesus Gonzalez. He's Jesus Christ, right? That's not what it is. Christ is a title like president or king. And specifically in the mind of the uh, Jews of the first century, the word Christ or Messiah referred to the king, which is why uh, Peter puts up, puts a definite article. You are not a Christ. You are the Christ. And and the word actually means, Christ or Messiah, means the anointed. One who is anointed, the anointed one. And uh, in the Old Testament, there were three offices. Prophet, priest, and king. And these were all anointed by God's Holy Spirit to fulfill the task that God has called them to do. And Jesus alone is prophet and priest and king. There's only one Christ who embodies all three of those things. So Jesus is the suffering servant who died for our sins. He's the prophet who makes God known because he himself is God in the flesh. He's the word made flesh. He's also the king who will rule over and subdue all of our enemies. So this is what we're looking at when we see talk about Jesus. Is uh, the, In the Enlightenment, we relegated Jesus to a religious figure. And then we had public life. That was never what they thought Jesus was. And that's never who Jesus thought he was. Jesus saw himself as the king, and they understood him to be the king. Not just the king of Jerusalem, but the messianic king that's talked about in the Old Testament who's going to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He, you can read about this in Psalm 2, where he talks about the, to, to which of these did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. He says, you're going to be the king over all of the nations. So when we talk about Jesus, he's a king that supersedes all kings, all pharaohs, czars, presidents, prime ministers, congresses, parliaments. He's the supreme ruler over Wall Street and Hollywood, New York, California, all over the world, period. He's the king who's going to put everything right and heal the world. So the Messiah was the one that God promised would come into the world to heal the world. The Messiah would come to redeem and repair and renew all that has been touched and ruined by the fall into sin. And as such, there's this deep embedded longing in the people of Israel in the first century for the coming of the Christ, for the coming of the Messiah, the one who's going to set things to right. And when he came, they saw him as the hope of Israel who would set everything would be all right, we'll be free, we'll be safe, we will have plenty. And so when Jesus came and showed up and started performing all of these miracles, people were drawn to him because he's bringing the healing that they've been hoping for. Not exactly the way they hoped it, but they were hoping for 
someone who could bring relief to them. And you know what that's like, right? To have somebody who shows up who can help when you feel helpless. When my daughter was uh, three, uh, she, she had uh, restrictive airway disease, I think is what they called it. I don't know if it's officially, we call it asthma or whatever. But somehow she uh, had, her airway was restricted and she was heaving, like just sucking in air. <gasps> and she just couldn't breathe. So we rushed her to the hospital. So we signed all the paperwork. They could see that she was struggling to breathe. So they took us back to immediately to the like, the curtained area where I could sit and just hold her. And so I'm holding her, and it felt like it was for an hour or more. And so I'm holding my daughter in my arms, and I'm watching all the medical personnel walk by. And she is just struggling to, this is not against medical professionals. We love medical professionals, right? It's just, this is this. And so I'm holding her in my arms, and she's just looking at me like, I can't breathe. And she's struggling to breathe. And then finally, this doctor was walking by and he just stopped and looked at her and he saw her heaving and struggling to breathe. And she said, let's go get her and take care of her right now. And I felt that relief of a parent like, thank you. Thank you. Don't you think this is what they're feeling here? There's this anticipation. Somebody, please, please. And then God sent Jesus. And so this is what's attached to the title of Christ in many ways in their minds. He's come, and everything's going to be all right. The brokenness of our lives, that's going to be repaired, the brokenness of the world. And so he's going to reclaim, redeem, restore all of the brokenness. Think about it. Think about his ministry on the earth while he was here. Uh, when people didn't recognize fully his identity, and he had not yet ascended to the throne of heaven and earth. But Jesus, at this point, people would come to him with their illness, and with a word or a touch, Jesus would heal them. People would come to them with, uh, with being demon-possessed. And at one point, Jesus faces down an entire army and with just a word drives out thousands of demons out of this one man. He shows he has power over the oppression of evil. He raised the dead. He forgave sins. He provided food for the hungry. He showed himself to have power over nature by calming the storm and walking on water. So every sphere of human existence, not just the political, but every sphere of human existence, Jesus showed he had power over that and the ability to bring healing and, and, and peace. And so when we read about Jesus being the Messiah in Scripture, he's, he's the king. He's God's champion. He's God's victor. He's the eternal ruler who will bring God's kingdom and a new age of peace and righteousness and plenty. So Jesus, as the Messiah, is God's sovereignly appointed king over the universe. Every part of it, which is great news. So Peter sees at least a little bit of this reality of who Jesus is spelled out to be in the rest of the New Testament and through Scripture. But uh, he didn't understand exactly why Jesus had come at this point. And so when, we, when we're reading through this, uh, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? In verse 29, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then in verse 30, it says, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Why? Well, the most likely reason is people had a misunderstanding of what kind of Christ this Jesus was, after all. 
because they would have a very culturally formed understanding of this Christ, that he's going to rescue the Jews from the worst possible thing, which is the Romans. That's our biggest problem. Our problem is them. And so when Peter comes, he rebukes Jesus and says, you can't die. That's not how this works. You win. And even though he had said, you, uh, uh, Jesus had said, I'm going to die and then raised to life, all I think all Peter heard was, I'm going to die. And he didn't understand that Jesus was talking about being raised. Yeah, everybody's going to be raised at the end. But right now, you've got to go take on Rome. You've got to go defeat uh, all of our enemies. So to him, to Peter, the enemy was Egypt, the Gentiles, the nations, Rome. But Jesus came for a bigger enemy. Death and sin and hell and Satan. And the only way for him to take that away from us was for him to take it on himself. And so we understand that when Jesus is talking about dying here, it's a substitutionary atonement. He's going to die for us, not because he's weak, not because he's going to lose, but because he's going to win. And until we recognize that's why Jesus was going to the cross, he's a Christ who dies, then we will not understand ourselves clearly. So I had a a student a couple of years ago, and I always have to change names in case one of them's listening uh, online. Um, So we're going to call him Carl. Uh, Carl was, um, how would I say, he's toxic. (laughs) He 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 was mean, he was angry, he claimed to be a Christian, and he, um, yeah, he drove people away constantly, but he liked me, and we spent a lot of time together and a lot of time talking about Christianity. And uh, it became clearer and clearer that he didn't really like God all that much. He just didn't want to go to hell. And so he saw himself as being obedient enough to be able to earn his way to heaven. And one of the ways that he found his righteousness is he was the editor of the conservative school newspaper at Clemson. And so he was not one of them over on that side. He was the editor of the conservative newspaper on this side. And uh, he wrote screeds, tirades, all kinds of stuff against people on the other side. And so we were talking one day about sin and redemption and obedience, and and his understanding of Christianity was, well, yeah, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but it's really by works. And so I said, you think that your works can save you? And he said, yeah. I mean, I'm keeping the commandments. I'm doing the things that God has called me to do. And he's the guy, if you remember that story from a while back where I said, he he said he hated God. But as he's talking to me, I said, okay, I'm going to ask a question. He said, okay, fire away. You can ask anything you want. I'm not afraid to answer any question you ask. And so uh, knowing the statistics about how young men spent their time online, I said, have you ever done this? And his response was, I am so offended at you for asking that question. I said, hey, you said I could ask any question. You said that just a moment ago. I asked the question. And so we started talking. And yes, he fit in all the statistics and everything else. But because nobody else could see it, he could hide it and pretend it wasn't real. And he pretended he could have righteousness for himself, right? He didn't realize, no, it's the things you do in secret. It's the things that come out of your heart. It's all of us are sinful and broken. The Bible is very clear about that, even Carl. And so as we began to talk, uh, he began to soften a little bit more to the idea that he might actually be a sinner. Um, 
Last I interacted with him, he hadn't believed in Christ, but that's my hope. But what he had to see was he needed Jesus to die for him, to enter into heaven. And as long as he didn't understand himself, he didn't understand Jesus. And as long as he didn't understand Jesus and the need and Jesus' mission to die for his people, he couldn't really understand himself. So what Jesus did is uh, on the cross for us is commonly referred to as the great exchange. Is Jesus lived a perfect life, and he counts that perfect life as ours. And Jesus lived a perfect life, so he didn't die for our sins, but he took our sins from, uh, from us and said, to the Father, treat me as if I'm the one who's performed all of these acts of sin and unrighteousness. And in doing so, he exchanged himself for us. So Jesus removed our guilt by dying the death that we should have died for our sin. He died that death on the cross for us. And so when we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, for those who are in Christ, it says, therefore, there is now, present tense, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I want you to kind of like kick that around in your head for just a little bit. He says, if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you, period. Think about it, right? Uh, let me ask you a question. I asked, this is a silly question, but you'll get it. Where are all the leprechauns? And some of you are going to say, Ireland? No. If you go to Ireland, they're going to tell you, hopefully, <laughs> uh, they're not real. There are no leprechauns. They don't exist. So in this passage, when he says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, where's the condemnation? There is none. It's taken away. It's gone for those who are in Christ because Jesus has taken it all and paid all of the price for our sins. They just don't exist. So what that means is we don't float in and out of condemnation with God. So, oh, I, I sin. Now I'm in condemnation. I better clean up my act. Now I'm out of condemnation. I don't sin. And oh, now I'm back in condemnation. Oh, I did something good. And now I'm out. No, if you're in Christ, you're always out of condemnation. You're not condemned because you're in Christ. But then there's a second thing that Jesus did. So he, he takes our sin, but he gives us his righteousness. So for the, those of you who are golfers in here, I'm looking at you. Um, here's, here's, this may help you. Is, uh, it's kind of like captain's choice righteousness. Does that make sense? For captain's choice. I'm not a golfer, but I read about this. So hopefully I'll be right. Don't critique my illustration, okay? So captain's choice righteousness. In a scramble, basically what this is, if, if, if you play golf, you're on a team of three to four, and your, your team of four tees off, and the best guys, where his ball lands, everybody else just picks up their ball when they're walking, and they all they, uh, do their next chip shot uh, from where that ball lay. So you always take the best ball, and the other ball is to say, well, we're just going to play where his was. Right? Is, that fair? is that accurate? Golfers? You're a golfer? You know? No. Okay. That's good. Okay, good. So, so imagine... You're playing golf with Jesus, and golf is representative of your life. And so the question comes up, how did you do with temptation? Uh, I 12-putted. Okay, 12-putted. So what did you have for the first hole? 57. Jesus got a hole in one. We're going to go with his. Okay? 
How did you do with loving your neighbor? Um, I actually got in a fight um, and got kicked off the course, so I'm not even playing anymore. Okay, Jesus got a hole in one. We'll take that, right? So in that way, Jesus' score is always counted as ours. Jesus earned the trophy, and we get to carry it. Jesus earned the medals that are pinned to his chest, but now they're pinned to ours too because we're in him. We have the righteousness of Christ. So it's not simply that we get out of jail, we get the trophy. So we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by what Jesus has done, and this is what he's talking about in this passage when he talks about dying for us. And so people ask the question, it's like, well, if he's, if he's a king, but he's paid for all of our sins, well, what's the motivation for living the Christian life? Why do we obey Jesus if he's paid for all of our sins? So let me give you four reasons that you can kick around in your heart and your mind. These are reasons. They're not all the reasons, but three very solid reasons, or three, four very solid reasons for, was I saying three the whole time doing this? Okay, 27 reasons. Um, so start with this one. It's all true. That's why we obey. It's all true. All of it's true. Jesus really is the Messiah. He really is going to transform the world. He really has reconciled us to God through Jesus. Uh, he really has called us to follow him, to serve him. He really does hear and answer our prayer. He really does speak to us by his word. He really has poured out on his, his spirit on us. We really are citizens of heaven. That's who we are. And we really are part of something bigger. It's all true. There's a reason to obey. Let me give you a second. Yeah, not third, second. We love him. He saved me. He's wonderful. Faith in Jesus produces a real heart change for him. I do not do what I do to use God to give me things. I do what I do because Jesus is a thing in and of himself that I love. I don't obey God so he'll give me stuff that I really do love. Jesus is the one that I really do love. He's my acceptance. He is my blessing. He is my great reward. I love him. And so I want to do what pleases him. It pleases me to please him. Number three, we buy into his vision for what the world ought to be, of people loving their neighbor and taking care of the poor and providing for those in need. I buy that vision. I want that vision. I want the world that I live in to be like that, and I'm giving myself to that, that mission and that vision. And then four is, uh, I guess I would say self-improvement. Uh, I'm my best me when I'm doing what he's called me to do. Um, I like me better when I'm walking in tandem with who Jesus has remade me to be. I want to be that person more who walks with Jesus that way. So that's the cause that he's called us to. But he, he talks here also, you know, finally, um, about the cost. So Peter's drawn a line in the sand, and Jesus is pretty stark in talking about that in verses 34 and following he says if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever would ever save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it and so what is he doing he's saying you can't have both of those things the line's been drawn christ is jesus is the christ or jesus is not the christ but we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And when he's saying here that we, that brings the challenge for us is he says, if you believe that I'm the Christ, you have to deny yourself 
whoever it is that you thought you were before, whatever you were living for. I'm denying that. I'm repudiating that. I'm rejecting that. And now I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to find my sense of identity in him. And that's really hard for people, live, for all of us as people. It's hard for people back then. It's hard for us today is giving up our old lives. And, and so what he's telling us is we're, we're called now to live life within the context of who Jesus is, following him. So I believe in him, and it means that I put my whole life and I understand my life within that context. Who Jesus is and what he's called me to do, that's who I am now. And he uses this image of a, a cross. Now for them, when we think about the cross, we think about Jesus on the cross, and we think salvation. That's not the way they would have heard him say the word cross here. Cross was a brutal form of Roman torture and death. They wanted to humiliate people. They wanted to humiliate their opponents. They wanted people to know we are the strong culture. We're the strongest in the world. We are growing and advancing and don't get in our way or we will trample you underfoot. We're the strong ones. So that's part of their identity in the midst of this. And what he's telling them here is you have You've, in your old identity, you could kind of like work that and maybe, you know, live within, under that and, and make yourself an identity within that. He's saying, no. You're stepping in and saying, no matter what that says, I'm following Jesus. I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. I'm going to honor him with my body. Whatever that means, I'm going to follow him. And so what he's telling us is that we have a new sense of self, a new identity. And this becomes important um, because in the first century, he was talking to people who were talking to ancient people. And for us, he's talking to modern people. And I've listened to a, a sermon this way. I thought this is really helpful in understanding what Jesus is talking about here. In the ancient world, you got your identity, the way, for, really from a traditional standpoint, you get your identity, how you think about yourself in the world as something that's handed to you. It's given to you right? So if you're born into a family, that's just who you are. You don't kind of decide who you're going to be. If your dad was a farmer, you're going to be a farmer. That's just who our family is. Um, some of your last names reflect the, the kind of heritage that you come from. Uh, probably the closest thing for us in, uh, to understand this is Prince William in England. Uh, that's just, he was born into that. That's just who he's going to be. That's kind of that traditionalist mindset. It's like, just accept who you are this is your identity. Modern world. Modern world is we create our own identity. We make our own identity. We choose our own identity. And so what this ends up doing is like in the, in the old world, it's like it, it was kind of like stifling a little bit for people. It's like, oh, yeah, I've just got to fit into this mold. This actually makes us incredibly fragile as people. Because in the old way, you, other people decided for you your identity, which was your stable sense of self and your sense of self-worth. This is who I am. This is where I get my worth from. This is my stable identity. I'm always this. In the, our culture, we're fragile as people because we're trying to find our sense of identity with something that we're doing, creating or earning, but we still look to other people to pass judgment on it. And that makes us fragile. I'll give you an example. This was years ago, so this is probably 12 plus years ago. I had a student at Clemson who was 
he was a big man on campus. He was a soccer player. Uh, he was the, uh, the kind of president or spokesperson for Fellowship of Christian Athletes there, and they probably had 1,200 students involved with Fellowship of Christian Athletes at Clemson. And uh, he was in pre-med. Everybody loved him. Everybody knew him. And there's this kind of secret society at Clemson that nobody's supposed to know about, but everybody knows about. And uh, so that, that's part of the, the allure of it. Like, everybody knows it's there, but we don't know who's in it. So one day I saw, uh, and we'll call him Peter, Peter walking across campus, and uh, he had this box. And the trick was, you had, if, you were in the bo- if you had a box, it's a cigar box, uh, you had to hold on to it and not lose it. And people would try to steal it, those kind of things, in order to be indoctrinated into this secret society that was there. And so uh, he would carry around candy in his because he was smart. So people would ask about the box. He'd say, it's a candy box. And he'd give people candy out of it so they wouldn't steal the box. So he had just figured out people. Just, he, just a great guy. Well, he fell off the map, like fell off the map for about four months. I didn't see him. I didn't hear from him. And finally, I was like, I haven't heard from Peter in forever. So I called him out of the blue. I said, hey, let's grab lunch. So we met off campus. And he didn't look good. There's like bags under his eyes and everything. And I said, hey, what is, where, what, what's been going on? Where have you been? I haven't seen you. And he said, Stephen, I had an honest to goodness nervous breakdown and just completely shut down. I couldn't do my work. I couldn't go to soccer practice. I couldn't do any of it. I just completely shut down. And I said, talk to me about this. And so what ended up happening is, uh, you know, big man on campus, one of these, everybody he meets, he would meet, he would sell himself to, right? Do you think I'm important? Do you think I'm significant? Do you think I'm funny? Do you think I'm likable? Do you think? And so he was creating this sense of self where I have value and I have worth based on what I do. And so being, you know, being a part of the secret society thing just completely was put him over the top and was his undoing. So we sat in this, uh, this Chinese restaurant for about two hours and for about 45 minutes of it I just told him the gospel that you don't find your value and worth in what you do but in what somebody else has done for you a person of great worth has found you worthy enough in his heart and in his life to give himself for you not because you were, you were but because he loved you and his love is what gives you worth you don't have to prove this to anybody. Every person you meet, the solid sense of self is, I have the love of the most important person in the cosmos. Jesus is the Christ, and he loves me and gave himself for me. And so as we're talking about this, Peter just put his head on the table. And it's kind of like, he's still listening. And so I kept going for, you know, maybe five more minutes just preaching the gospel to him. And he raised his head, his face red, tears streaming down his face. And he said, that is so good. That is so good. That is so good. And he's right, it's so good. We're in a moment culturally where we would talk about, if you're older in here, you talk about the younger younger generations being very fragile. Right, we do. We talk about people being fragile. But the reality is, is it's not because they're in a younger generation and you're Gen X or boomers. I see that all the time on on social media where people are kind of like, you know what's wrong with today's generation? 
is they didn't have these bicycle pedals. They didn't jump ramps like we did. We were out in the woods running. We ran around the neighborhoods. We, were ba we basically lived a war when we were growing up. That's why we're so tough and they're so fr No. It's because culturally we've robbed people of the truth about Jesus, the stable sense of identity. That's what makes us stable. And that's what gives us worth is we're tied to him. So that was taking place at the fall and there have been con you know, counterfeits throughout the generations of things that say this is what matters, your family name, you're rich, you've, you have the strength, you have this power, you've made a name for yourself, you've gotten glory for yourself. But where glory that lasts comes from is a glory that doesn't come from us, a glory that comes from Jesus. I have a stable sense of self. I know who I am in every situation I go into. I belong to Jesus. And I have great value and worth because I belong to Jesus. Jesus knows my name. So as we begin to look at this passage, and Jesus is talking about uh, taking up our cross and following him, that sounds really awful until you realize that he gives better than he asks. He was going to carry the cross of our guilt and shame and die upon it. He calls us to carry the cross of cultural guilt and shame to him to find healing. If, if this person, if Jesus Christ, if Jesus is the Christ, it means we don't have anything that we need to worry about. He's with us. If he who has supreme power loves me and gave himself for me, what need I fear? We're safe in him. I need not fear any hard things or grief or other people, because Jesus came to die, but it was planned, and it was purposeful, and it was not permanent. He rose again, and so shall we. And Jesus rose to glory, and in Jesus, we have glory, because we are found in him. The saints, this is from John Owen, and we'll close with this. The saints delight in Christ. He is their joy, their crown, their rejoicing, their life, food, health, strength, desire, righteousness, salvation, blessedness. Without him, they have nothing. In him, they shall find all things. In Jesus, we have all things. Let me pray. Yeah, I'm fragile apart from you. I am weak apart from you. I see that in my life. I see that in the people that I sometimes fear. I see that in the situations I sometimes fear. I see that in not trusting you, that you're going to accomplish what is good and right in my life and in the world. But I pray that along with Peter, this would resonate in my soul, that you are the Christ you are the Christ who has been promised way back with Adam and Eve. You're the Christ whose return is promised someday, one day, to renew and restore all things. You are the Christ who right now has poured out your spirit upon us so that we have you. Would you bless us? Would you be with us now and walk with us? We ask in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this podcast, a production of Seven Rivers Villages Church in Wildwood, Florida. Learn more at sevenriversvillages.org.